I'm going to move into the scripture reading. We're going to be reading from Psalm 91, 9 through 16, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Psalm 91, 9 through 16. Thank you, Emily. So Psalm 91. If you have your Bibles, open up Psalm 91. We're going to just walk through Psalm 91. As it was read by our sister Emily, uh, we're, we're continuing in our summer series in the book of Psalms. Every summer, we're, we're in the Psalms. And today we're going to be in the 91st Psalm, and here the psalmist shares about his own personal experiences, really the stories of battles that he's faced over his journey with God. He talks about temptations, schemes, attacks, and how he has dealt with those traps, temptations, and scams uh, and schemes. And verse 3 to 7, if you actually read through verse 3 to 7, the psalmist makes it obvious he's not speaking about a particular battle that he's faced in one time in his life. He's really speaking about attacks upon attacks that God's people, not just himself, faces or face as they walk with God. Psalm 91 is really speaking about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. That's what we're going to be talking about today through Psalm 91. If we have committed our lives to follow Jesus and we have committed ourselves to do our best to live according to teachings of Jesus, we're going to face hardships. We're going to face attacks, put-downs, pushbacks. Scripture is very clear about the reality of the challenges we will face as we make those commitments before Jesus. Yet, yet for most of us, there are two major ways we deal with this idea of spiritual warfare when it comes to dealing with this idea of spiritual attacks. For some of us, you know, we are fully aware of all that's happening beyond us, or at least we think we are. And the temptation is we either make everything an attack from Satan, something goes wrong in your life, your car breaks down, Something goes wrong as you're teaching, your student is terrible, and you are quick to blame Satan for everything that's happened. Or we completely go the other way and ignore any kind of these spiritual warfare, warfare talk and continue to walk in ignorance. Really often, that's many of us how we deal with spiritual, spiritual warfare. Well, Psalm 91, I can't, I can't speak today. Psalm 91 provides for you and I the middle road where we're not ignoring it. We're not making everything about spiritual warfare. This middle road where as followers of Jesus, we know spiritual battles are real, yet we are not, we are not undone by them. Right? Instead, we can face these spiritual battles with great confidence because we know we're not facing them on our own. That's Psalm 91. 
So I have two main truths, two things I want to talk about from our passage. Our sister read from verse 9. We're going to, we're going to go through the whole, whole psalm. Two truths. First one is the reality of battle, right? We will face these battles in our own faith journey. That's the first thing we're going to talk about, the battle is real. The second, we won't be facing them on our own. So the bad news is we're going to face these spiritual attacks and battles. The good news is these are not our battles to face, actually. Someone else is going to fight for them. So first, the reality of the battle. Verse 3 to 6, the psalmist speaks of traps, deadly pests, terrors of the night, arrows flying towards him and God's people. Verse 7, a thousand, ten thousand will fall in the sight of godly people. Right, he, he talks about these intense things that are happening, right? Deadly traps, killer pestilence swarm, and terrors of the night, arrows flying at us. What he's saying is Satan is real and Satan is unrelenting. Listen to Apostle Paul as he describes the same subject in his letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 6, 11 to 19. I have it on the screen for you. Apostle Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that's what we think, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Apostle Paul can't be more, I mean, can't be more clear. He says the battles that we fight, the challenges that we face, they're not just the face, they're not just the things we face in physical realm, but there is a there's a greater realm, there's a spiritual realm that we face. And and Paul is simply saying, as followers of Jesus, you and I, we are we are constantly engaged in a battle. Whether you recognize it or not, we are constantly engaged in a battle. And again, the battle doesn't simply exist in flesh and blood. It's not just what we see. It's not just between our coworkers, it's not just between you and your boss. In fact, every waking moment of your life, your life is a battlefield. That's Paul. That's Psalm 91. And these battles come in many forms, right? This past week, you may have had an argument with your spouse. Perhaps a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding at work. A fallout with a friend or combination of any of those things. Or you feel like everything is falling apart around you. You feel like you can't catch a break. Anyone feel like that? Paul says, these are challenges. These are traps. These are schemes. And again, those experiences, those experiences just might not be coincidences or just your own doing. But it's a battle that you have engaged yourself in. Now, before I go on further, let me be very clear. Not every argument or misstep in your life is the devil's doing. I've heard people that say everything that happens, every wrong thing that happens goes, that's the devil. We've got to pray against the devil. It's, it's very easy to fall into the trap of blaming Satan and his demons for every wrong thing that, that's happened in your life. And, and scripture is very clear. That's not true either. 
Yes, certainly Satan can use your failures, your missteps, your greed, or your selfishness to cause havoc in your life. Yet we must also acknowledge our wrongdoing is on us. It's our sin, our selfishness, and and, and grow from them. So, So we have to be very clear. Not everything that happens in your life that's wrong is happening because Satan is after you. So the argument you had with someone this week, sure, Satan may have widened the gap of misunderstanding, but you can't simply say that's devil's doing. No. Again, there is your sin. There is the sin of others. There's selfishness and envy and greed and everything we struggle with every day of our lives. So we have to make sure we understand that everything is from Satan. But again, Psalm 91 and Ephesians 3 says there is a battle that we are engaged in. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've committed your life to follow his teachings, there's going to be a battle. Uh, I've introduced this book several times uh, from this pulpit by an author named C.S. Lewis. You'll hear his name a lot. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful book on the topic of spiritual warfare titled The Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you ever read it. It's a wonderful fictional book. It's really a conversation, a fictional conversation between an uncle demon named Screwtape and his, and his cousin, his nephew, I'm sorry, his nephew demon. And his, his, this uncle demon is instructing, discipling this, this nephew demon on how to keep humans from the enemy. The enemy is God. How to keep humans away from really trusting, really committing them to, themselves to God. And, 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 and one of the, in one of the sections of the book, Uncle says, hey, rule number one. He's, he's, he's advising, he's, he's, he's teaching his nephew. He says, rule number one, don't, if you want to be a good demon, don't let humans believe there is a war. Right? Most effective way to keep humans from pursuing God is taking them down slowly, gently, soft underfoot, without any sudden turnings. Here's a, here's a quote that I'll read for us from the book. This is Screwtape, the uncle demon, speaking to his um, nephew. He says, Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. You see, the last thing that Satan wants you and I to know is that there actually is a war that we have been engaged in, right? Because, why? Because, it's simple, we cannot fight against what we don't see, right? We cannot fight in this war if we don't realize we're actually in a war. That's the fastest way to lose a war. And that's the best, best way for Satan to win his war, to make us believe that he's not real. To make us believe his schemes aren't real. There are no traps. Life is, is what it is. It is what it is. But friends, Satan's schemes are way more subtle than we realize. Right? Satan, we think Satan's going to just show up and say, Hey, I'm Satan. Nice to meet you. How's it going, Rachel? I want to just talk to you this morning about doing something terrible on your life. No. Satan's not going to come and say, I'm Satan. Right? Every Satan's schemes are much more subtle than we realize. They come from places we least expect it, right? He could tap into our fears, the fears that we have. He could press into the things that we love, perhaps things that 
We idolize success, careers, money, relationships, you name it. Even good things like family, Satan can get in there and cause havoc. In fact, often he'll trap us with things that we deeply care about and pin them against God. This is why our spiritual battles teach us a lot about what we truly love. When we think about the battles that you're engaged in, what is really getting you in these battles, often our spiritual battles that we face each day teach us a lot about what we truly love. So how do we fight this battle? I mean, this, this, is, this is the main question that the, the psalmist in, in 91 is trying to answer. How do we fight this spiritual battle? If the battle is real, if Satan is real, and Satan has these traps and schemes, how do we fight it? This brings us to the second truth. Yes, there's a battle, but the psalmist says it is actually not our battle. This is not our battle to fight. Notice verse 2 to 7, the psalmist doesn't say fight back. You fight back. He doesn't, say, he doesn't challenge us to go after, after the battle. He says, instead he says pray. He says you simply pray to the one who's going to do the fighting. Right? Verse 2, the psalmist is declaring in the midst of this intense war, the psalmist says, God, you are my refuge. Yahweh, you are my refuge. You are my fortress. You are whom I trust. Note how the psalmist responds to his battle. He doesn't say, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be more prudent. I'll fend for myself. No, in fact, the battle has nothing to do with what he can do on his own. It's about pleading to the one who can. It's about pleading to the one who will fight for us. That's why he says in verse 3, he's the one who's going to deliver us. He's the one who covers us. He's the one who hides us under his wings. He's the one who gives us confidence. He's the one who spares our lives. Verse 7. You see what psalmist is doing. The psalmist here is simply praying to Yahweh, praying to God about God's own promises over his life. Right? What the psalmist is doing is he's declaring to God the things that God has already promised to be. Right? These things, God, the one who delivers, the one who covers, the one who hides us, the one who gives us confidence. These are the promises of God that's written in scripture. And the psalmist says, this is who you are, God. I'm, I'm calling you out on your promises. And that's how he's praying. And this is powerful, right? Because the psalmist is declaring to God the things that God has already promised. My daughter Emma will ask for something all the time. Like my daughter is just like me. She can't handle boredom. She's always bored. If she's not doing something, she's always bored, like her father. Um, evening walk. She, she wants evening walk every night. She wants uh, morning drive, ice cream, a toy, McDonald's, whatever, right? And she's smart. So whenever she comes to me with a request... She'll say, she'll say this, Dad, two weeks ago you promised me you would take me on a date. Right? Two weeks ago. She has impeccable memory. I have, I have terrible memories. So I never remember. But I'm like, I promised you. Like, you promised me, Dad, you're going to buy me ice cream. You promised me because I always have to deal with her to get her to do things. Right? That, that's, that's another sermon for another time. But whenever she reminds me of the promise that I had made to her, whether that was a moment of desperation or whatever, whatever reason, I made this promise to her, there is no way I'm going to say no to her request. Why? Yes, I love my daughter. I, I love seeing her 
you know, chow down on, on ice cream corn. I love that. But really, more importantly, my reputation is at stake. If she's saying, you promised me, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be like, no, because my character is at stake. My daughter is going to, you know, eventually uh, find a man and get married and sort of how I, anyway, that's, that, I, I'm going too deep. Let's, let's pull, let's pull out, pull out. Um, my reputation is at stake. I promised her and I, I'm going to keep my word. In the same way, throughout the scripture, we see God's people pleading to God in the same way, reminding God of his past promises. And again, God does not refuse them. That's scripture. Moses, I think it's Exodus 33. You know, God is fed up with his people, right? His people, Moses leaves them for a little bit and they, they create this idol, begins to worship. You know, the sin of idolatry. And God tells Moses, man, I'm not going to go with you. This, if I go, I'm going to be so upset. I'm going to, I'm going to all, I'm going to, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to handle, handle them. And Moses says, God, you promised. You promised you're going to go with us. What would other nations say if you don't go with us? And, and God relented his anger. I mean, throughout the story, stories like that is all over Old Testament. Right? Moses is calling God out on his own promises. God, you said you're going to do this. This is who you are. This is your character. This is your name. And this is what the psalmist is doing in verses 2 to 7. He's simply reminding God of the promises he's made to his people. And, and, and Ezekiel 37 and different passages, God makes it very clear he loves honoring his own name. Right? He loves to honor his own name. God says, I will rescue my people, not because they're deserving, but rather because of my name. That's Ezekiel 37, right? Even though they're sinful, even though you guys, are, you guys can never get things right, because of my name, I'm going to raise you up again. Because of my name, I'm going to return you to your land. Because of my name, I'm going to provide for you. God takes, takes his name very seriously. Jesus after teaching the crowd the Lord's Prayer, his disciples the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, he tells this interesting parable. And the title of the parable is A Friend at the Midnight. Right? Luke 11, 5 to 8. Very, very interesting parable if you think about it. And many believe this parable, the, the lesson of their, this parable is about our need to be persistent in our prayers. Right? The friend comes over at midnight, door is locked, the, the, the person inside is ready to go to bed, and the friend comes and asks for some loaves of bread, and the friend inside says, well, I'm, every, I'm ready to go to bed, the door is locked, my children are in bed with me, but not because you're my friend, but because of your impudence or because of your persistence, I'm going to open the door and give you something. So a lot of people think this is about us pursuing God to give us something that he does not want to give us, right? And I thought that was the lesson of the parable too for a long time until I ran into a, a scholar named Kenneth Bailey. If you want to study any of the parables, write down this name, Kenneth Bailey. He's a wonderful New Testament scholar. And his work, has his work on Luke 11 has completely changed the way I thought about this particular parable. You see, Kenneth Bailey says, the parable of friend at the midnight has nothing to do with our persistence in prayer. 
Rather, it has everything to do with God's name, God's character, and God's desire to honor His own name. It's going to take about an hour and a half for me to unpack this whole thing on, on Luke 11, but I'm going to try to do it in two minutes. Ready? For the sake of the point, this is important. Um, Luke 11, right, Jesus Again, tells a parable about a man who comes to his friend late at night asking for bread so he can host his own guest who's visiting, right? And, and everything seems perfectly fine until we hit verse 7. The parable gets a little strange there. The friend, verse 7, Luke 11, the friend inside will answer because the friend's coming at midnight asking, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence or persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And then Jesus goes on in verse 9. I tell you, ask, it will be given. Seek, you will find. Uh, knock and it will be open to you. And most of us think, oh, that's about being persistent. When we do that, God's going to open and God's going to give us, God's going to answer. Well, here are the two major things that we need to look at to truly understand Luke 11, right? And I have it on the screen so we can understand a little bit better. One, definition of the word anidian, which is translated in ESV as impudence. NIV, persistence. Um, second, who is the word anidian, impudence, attributed to? Right? Most people believe it's about friend outside. But let me explain what that is. Right? So first, the word anidian is one of those rare words with two very different meanings. One word with two different definitions. It just depends on how you use it. Right? The positive meaning of the word anidian is, yes, persistence. ESV says impudence. Yes. But the negative meaning of anidian is, uh, is not persistence. It is actually avoiding shame. Avoiding shame. This is important. Follow with me. I know it's, it's hot, but follow with me. Avoiding shame. So Bailey argues, right, verse Anidian, the word that's, that's translated as impudence in ESV, it should be translated as to avoid shame, right? And he gives you the cultural reason, the grammatical reason, the textual reason. I don't, I'm not going to get into all of that. I, I preached on this before. I, think, I believe you can find it on our website. Um, for the sake of time. But, again, it should have been translated as to avoid shame. Now, on to the second point, right? Who is trying to avoid shame in this story? Is it the person inside or is it the person outside? Is it the person who's answering? Is it the person who's asking? Right? If we translate the word to avoid shame, obviously it's not talking about person outside. It's talking about person inside, Right? So verse 8, if you put all of these things together, what Jesus is trying to tell the crowd is that he will not get up and give him anything, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. It's all about the person inside, every action. Can we go back to the other slide? Go back to the other slide, please. Slide back. Here we go. All of the actions in that verse, verse 8, is attributed to the person inside. So when they say his impudence, it's not talking about 
the person outside's persistence is actually talking about person inside avoiding shame. In their culture, when a guest came to your town, everybody had to play their part to host the guest. And if next day people found out that this man went to his friend's house asking for some bread so that they can host this man and found out that this man did not open the door and share his bread with them, he's going to be in a whole lot of trouble, a whole lot of shame. That was the culture. So what Jesus is saying in Luke 11 is this. When we pray, because the person inside is representing God. When we pray in his name, pray back to God, his own promises, what we're doing is we're putting his reputation on the line and God's going to meet you every time you do that. And the point that Jesus is trying to make is, yes, God loves us. He absolutely loves you and I. That's not debatable if we look at the scripture. Yet even if he didn't love us, like I love my daughter, right? She asked for ice cream. I love my daughter. I want her to enjoy ice cream. But even if I didn't love my daughter, even if God didn't love us, he's going to still honor his own promises because his own reputation is on the line. That's what really Luke 11 is about. So immediately following the parable, then the parable makes sense. Then Jesus' encouragement makes sense, right? That's why Jesus says, seek, ask, knock. Because if you do it in his name, he's going to answer. If you really think about it, if, if it's persistence, you, it sounds so weird that God doesn't want to give us something, but if we continue to knock, 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 God's going to give it to us. No, that's not, that's not the parable. This is the parable. And this is precisely what the psalmist in Psalm 91 is doing. Friends, are you struggling? Are you sensing some demonic attacks in your own life? Are you afraid or filled with anxiety? Psalm 91, the psalmist says, pray. Pray, God, you are Jehovah Jireh. That's the name that God has revealed himself to be. God, you are my provider, Jehovah Jireh. Pray, God, you are Jehovah Nisi, my banner, the one who fights for me. God, you are Jehovah Shalom, my peace. You are my shelter. You are my refuge. You are my victory. And God promises, and Psalm 91 promises that you will be hurt. He will show himself to be faithful again and again when we do that. When we come to him, putting his reputation on the line, saying, this is who you said you are, God. Amen? I'm sorry, Luke 11 was like, I went so fast, and I'm sure I've lost some of you guys, but it's a wonderful, Kenneth Bailey, look him up. Wonderful. Let's bring this psalm to close. Verses 14 to 16. That's the end. And all of a sudden, the voice of psalmist gives way to the voice of Yahweh. God actually shows up and God begins to speak. Verses 14, 15, 16. And verse 14, God says, I will love. I will deliver. I will answer. I will rescue. I will honor. I will grant you long life. I will save. My hand is not too short to save you. But there's a caveat. What's the caveat? What's the condition? Verse 14, those who hold fast to me, those who knows my name, those who knows my character, those who's going to live according to my values, is that picture of us? He's saying the righteous will be loved. The righteous will be delivered. The righteous will be heard. 
What if we don't pass the test? What if we continue to fail to live in complete obedience to God? What if we have our moments of doubt and fears? Isn't that reality for all of us, including myself? I mean, that was Psalm 34. That's how Psalm 34 sort of came to close last week. The chasm that's been created because of our own failures and because of our own greed and selfishness and our sin. So, so how do we get God to answer our prayers? If we're not righteous, here's the wonderful promise. Verse 14, this is the gospel. Because we could not obey God, because we could not know God, because we could not come to God, Jesus came for you and I to wash away our sins and shame. Verse 14, even though psalmist probably had no idea what he was talking about, is really a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the only one who never doubted, who never questioned God, who was, he was the only truly righteous one, and he's the only one who knows the Father best. He has spent eternity with God the Father. There's no one else who knows Father better than Jesus himself. Yet we know when Jesus, the righteous one, the only righteous one, hung on the Roman cross and cried out to his own father, 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 why have you forsaken me? And breathe his final breath. At that moment, God the Father had to look away. And he remained silent. And God did that for us. Apostle Paul says God did that for you and I. That Jesus became cursed. He became sin who knew no sin. God the Father placed all of our wrath, all the wrath that we deserve onto the shoulders of innocent son. Therefore, for those who are in Christ, we can confidently come to God and pray these words in Psalm 91. Friends, this is the gospel. Say it with me. I say it every week. Jesus lived a life, what? We could not live. And he died the death for us and because of us. Jesus lived a life that we could not live and died the death for us because of us. So as you and I fix our eyes on Jesus... We do not need to remain afraid. We do not need to remain anxious. We do not need to be paralyzed by these attacks and these schemes and these traps of the evil one. For we have Jehovah Nisi. We have Jehovah Jarrah. We have Jehovah Rofa. We have Jehovah Shalom. So friends, this week, as you face your own battles, and everyone's battles look different, as you face your own battles, go to Scripture. And pray his character back to him. And I promise you, you will be hurt. I promise you, God will answer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 91. We thank you that you honor your own name. You love your own name. You love your own reputation. So this afternoon we come, Lord. Most of us are online. We come with our requests. For some of us, Lord, we need reordering of our lives. For some of us, we need healing financially. We need healing relationally. For others of us, our marriage needs work. A relationship, you know, with our coworkers needs work. Our own 
hearts and what we love needs to be reordered. Yet, Lord, we know we, we cannot do any of those things with our own strength. For this is not our battle. This is yours, God. So we come declaring what the psalmist in Psalm 91, that, Lord, you are going to deliver because you are Jehovah Nisi. You are going to heal because you are Jehovah Rapha. God, you're going to give us peace because you are Jehovah Shalom. Adonai, you are, you are who you said you are. So, Lord, we come trusting in your faithful hands. We thank you. We love you. Just let me pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to go into time of communion. If you have prepared your communion.